and we lift our hearts in praise, in song. I just noticed, even this morning, how the songs fitted in with the theme this morning. And some words I picked out of one of the songs is, We don't know how much it cost to see our sin upon the cross. We have no idea what that cost was. But here I stand, and here we are in partnership. There's a responsibility every Sunday on the man who stands behind this pulpit, and here mostly it's Matthew, to deliver to you a word from God's Word to bring understanding so that the very food of life that you need the very food of life that you come in on a Sunday to expect is fed to you so that you can grow spiritually. That's the responsibility of the person behind the pulpit. But folks, there's another responsibility here that we must not forget. And that is the responsibility of the hearer. You're all sitting here. We listen to sermons Sunday after Sunday. Sometimes we fall asleep. Other times we get really excited. But there's a responsibility on the hearer. The Lord says that we come under the hearing of the Word of Christ. And that builds our faith. And there's a responsibility there. So there's a partnership again. And we're going to see the ultimate partnership when we get to the end of this message this morning. And as has been already been mentioned, we had a great wedding ceremony yesterday. Really a great Christ-centered wedding ceremony as John and Lavinia got married. And the message that was preached was a wonderful message of salvation and reconciliation. And Matthew did a great job of showing everyone that particular message out of God's Word. And you're going to get the same message this morning. Um, let's turn in our Bibles now to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we are going to look at verses... 17 through 21, and then we're going to look at chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. But one of the verses in chapter 5 that really caught my attention was verse 20. Let me read it. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. The word pleading there in the Greek can also mean begging. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now here is Almighty God, who in a sense is pleading through you and I, those who know Him as Savior, pleading through us to who? To His enemies. He was speaking to His enemies. Can we comprehend, can we understand the full extent of God's, the heart of love that God had for these people? 
I want us to think on something this morning for a minute. Imagine if someone whom you loved came into your house and killed your wife or murdered your child. What would you think? What would you do? To bring about justice, the penalty for murder is death or life imprisonment. Would you be able to look this killer, the enemy of yours in the eye, the one who has destroyed or who is destroying your family, and say, honestly, I forgive you. And I will pay the full price for your crime to satisfy the courts of justice by going to prison or taking the death penalty for you. This forgiveness on an earthly scale is but a tiny snippet of what God has done for us on an eternal scale. The perfect humility of a mighty God, the perfect love of our Creator, is demonstrated here in our passage where reconciliation is the theme. And this morning, we want to have a brief look at these verses and I want to leave you with some insights that will challenge your hearts, that will excite you, that will build you up and encourage you to greater service for our Savior. It's a very basic message. And it's an overflow, basically, from the Shepherds Conference, which I attended a, couple, a month and a half ago. And at Shepherds Conference, they were celebrating the 500th anniversary of, of Martin Luther nailing that, that lot to the door. The just shall live by faith. This is an overflow of that. And I am sure that you have heard this many times. But you know, the more we hear, the sooner it will really settle in our hearts. And we can never hear the gospel enough. And the main thing in ministry flows out of this passage today. It is not complicated. It is not difficult to interpret or apply. It is definitive. And in every sense, it lays down for us what the objective is of our lives and what the goal and priority is that we have in this world before us. It also instructs us as to our responsibility to our Savior in clear terms. Our mission is to bring to the unsaved the most important message of all eternity. This, greatest call, this is the greatest calling of all time. It's hope for the sinner. Let me read our passage. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
In chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, We then, as workers together with Him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For He says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Coming back to verse 17, starts off with, therefore, if anyone. The word anyone there means anyone. A good person, a criminal, an idolater, an adulterer, a religious person. Because the grace and the mercy of God are wide enough to encompass even the most of wicked of people the vilest of sinners and the best of the religious and the so-called do-good people. So anyone is, has a very wide, wide range. If anyone is in Christ, that preposition, in, denotes a fixed position. It denotes being placed into a fixed position in Christ. That's what it means. And of course you know that in Christ means to be joined with Him in His death and resurrection and thus to receive the benefits of His salvation. So if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. In other words, there was an old creation, there's now a new creation. And I want to just dwell on that word creation for a few minutes. It comes from the Greek word which means that which was formed originally. So let's turn to the original formation in Genesis chapter 1. The original creation. Genesis chapter 1. And I want to read a few verses from chapter 1. Starting with verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, of the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Everything that man needed. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Then God saw, verse 31, everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So here we see creation right at the beginning. An original man only knew good. Adam was in perfect fellowship with God. Imagine that situation. I'm sure you have at times. It was utopia. There was no sickness. There was no fear. There was no hurt. There was no toil. There was no hardship. They didn't even, well, they didn't even wear clothes. Because the temperature in the garden was perfect. There was no shame. 
There was perfect harmony with God. They were able to converse with Him openly. And Adam was even given Eve as an earthly companion and a helpmeet. There was no squabbling. There was no arguments. There was no fighting. This was marital bliss. They had this open line to God at any time. It was absolute contentment and joy in their God-given domain. This was creation as God made it, and God said it was very good. So what happened? Genesis 3. Let's look at a few verses from Genesis 3, starting in verse 1. There was a serpent who was cunning. He was more cunning than any beast. And he says to Eve, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat from the tree of the garden? You shall not eat from every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may, may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree desirable to make one wise, she took his fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. She succumbed to temptation. And suddenly, their whole world changed. They now knew evil. Their disobedience opened them up to the dark world of Satan and his seduction. Sinful pride had entered. And they succumbed to the temptation and the lust of the flesh. It was good for food. The lust of the eyes. It was pleasant to the eyes. And the pride of life. It was desirable to make one wise. We see that very verse played over again in 1 John 2.16 where we're told, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Here we see that their sensuous appetite was stirred and they fell. And this is where mankind began, but now in this condition they were cast out of the garden because of their sin. Folks, we all came under the dominion of sin. A hopeless, desperate condition which rendered mankind stone dead to God's realm. A realm wherein mankind actually began. And this sinful condition in which the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that's Romans 3.23, and the wages of sin is death, that's Romans 6.23, this condition Paul describes here as old things. If you look back at our verse in, in 2 Corinthians, you'll see what Paul says here. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. And these old things, this sinful condition is sending rebellious mankind to hell for all eternity. That is a frightening thought. 
But as the unbeliever responds in repentance and acceptance of God's grace, receiving Jesus as his Savior and Master, the next part of this verse comes in and says, Behold, all things have become new. It is, is as if the judge says to you, You are free to go. Someone else has taken the death sentence for you and paid the price. And I just want to go through one or two verses from Ephesians. You will remember that some time ago, Matt went through the book of Ephesians. And these are really exciting verses describing this very thing. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4, we see that all-important word, but God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Sitting in heavenly places. When you've received Christ as your Savior, that's where you're seated. That in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness towards you, having been saved through faith, uh, sorry, riches of grace in His kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Speaking here of the new creation. Those who follow Christ because they have started the transformation that will eventually lead to their full enjoyment of salvation in the new heaven and the new earth. They are put or fixed into a position in Christ where His righteousness covers. And that's what God sees. Folks, this was God's intention at the beginning in Eden. In full communication with Him. Not dead to Him. Full communication with Him. Look at verse 18. All things are of God. Now all things are of God. I'll repeat that. Now all things are of God. That refers to my position. That refers to my perfection before God because of Christ. Old values, old ideas, old plans, old loves, old desires and old beliefs vanish. And they're replaced by new things. All wisdom, all power and all prestige that belong to the old creation have been judged and done away with. And the all things referred to here refer back to verse 17. And these all things which have become new are of God. They are by the will of God. You know, sinners have no power to make any change at all. Man can never appease God. In his sinful state, he is stone dead to the spiritual realm. There's nothing he can do. But God so loved sinners that he sought a way to reconcile. The rest of verse 18 tells us, Who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. That's the way He has reconciled us, through Jesus Christ. Reconcil reconciliation is the establishment of harmony and peace between enemies. 
Enemies are said to be reconciled when their hostility ceases. When mutual love binds them together. How does reconciliation take place? Well, here we see that God took His Son as the means to reconcile sinners to Himself. We are told in Romans 5.10, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. It also tells us in John 10.14 that I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known by my own. I lay my life down for my sheep. Here is the sinless man dying for sinful men. The only sinless one was God himself. And the sinless one had to be the substitute for all mankind. Reconciliation between two parties takes immense humility. And that depends on the extent of the offense. God Almighty was so offended by man's sin that He cut man off spiritually, reckoning them as dead to Him. We can have a look at Philippians 2. And I just want to read a few verses from Philippians 2, reading from verse 6. Jesus, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Here he showed his great humility taking upon himself man's offense against God, dying a shameful death so we can be reconciled. On his side, great humility and godly love. On man's side, acknowledgement of sin. I have sinned against you, Father, and desperately need your forgiveness. This takes humility, which is the opposite of pride, to which man is prone. What about when a person has offended you? Do you know that it takes humility to go to him and explain his fault? To explain his error? To explain his sin against you? And it takes greater humility for that person to acknowledge his wrong so there can be true repentance and forgiveness. If he refuses to acknowledge his wrong... His pride has a field day, and reconciliation is impossible. How tragic that is. The rest of verse 18 in 2 Corinthians 5 says, We're reconciled to, reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. We as God's people are given that ministry of reconciliation. It's the highest calling. It's a noble privilege. It's the privilege of sharing God's message of reconciliation and it is the most important duty in the world since it deals with eternal destinations. <clears throat> there isn't a single human being that's ever been born 
that does not have an eternal destination. And there's only a choice of two. Or should I say there is only an option of two. Hell or heaven. And we need to understand that as God's servants, we are like waiters where there are starving people out there. They are dying. They're on their way to hell. They're starving. We're like waiters going to their table and serving these starving people with the food of life. It's not our responsibility to force them to eat that. But it is our responsibility to share the food of life. And this food of life is the message of reconciliation. In verse 19, he goes on to say, That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God is the reconciler through his incarnate Son. It is a divine work. It is an act of God in bringing sinners into a new covenant relationship with himself through the forgiveness of sins. Your sin is no longer imputed to you as you put your faith in Christ, as you trust in Him. Positionally now, you have the righteousness of Christ, you are in Christ, and that is how God sees you. Now here's a controversial word. Christ reconciling the world to Himself. What does that word mean? That word shows the ultimate end of God's purpose the world here refers to the class of being whom God seeks to reconcile. His sacrifice is totally sufficient to pay the penalty for as many or few as God saves. He is a savior of infinite value who paid a price of infinite worth for the whole of humanity but applied to as many or few as God saves. Put in simple terms, Christ's saving work on the cross is sufficient for every human being, but it is effective only for those who believe. Again, when we look at John chapter 14, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known by my own. In Romans 4, 5 to 8, this is what, he, what Paul says, but to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. And then we can think of Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, where he says, I pray for them. Father, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. And here is the focus of the atonement of Christ. It is only on behalf of those who believe. But the offer was extended to all, but the actual payment was limited to those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Jesus paid the full penalty for those who would belong to Him, given by His Father. 
And so the word or the message of reconciliation is our role in this worldwide plan, and it is committed to us. God has provided the way of salvation through Jesus Christ. Now, folks, you all come into to contact with people out there in the world. There's many around you that your heart's breaking because they're not receiving the word. There are times when you're speaking to the unsaved that you're looking for opportunity to share the gospel. And maybe that opportunity comes, and now you're going to share the gospel. I just want to say this. Their attention span when listening to truth, this kind of truth, is probably only 90 seconds. And then they're going to start drifting off somewhere else. The question is, can you share the gospel in 90 seconds? So what I've done is I've just put down a concise passage here of the gospel. Concise. To get it into 90 seconds. And I'm going to give it to you now. If you want to time me, that's fine. If I go over, I'm in trouble. You now get the opportunity to share the gospel. You've got 90 seconds. Brother or sister, God is just. God is holy. And because He is just and because He is holy, He has to punish sin. Man is depraved. Man is sinful and must pay the penalty for his sin. As the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that the wages of sin is death. But God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have life everlasting. I want you to know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He died the horrendous, humiliating, painful death on the cross in our place, taking the full wrath of God on Himself. A sinless sacrifice, paying the penalty for our sins, satisfying God's justice and the courts of heaven. As we recognize our sinfulness and repent of our sin, calling upon the name of the Lord, God forgives us and covers us with Christ's righteousness. This is a free gift of God's grace, glorious grace. Ask God to forgive you your sin now and put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and receive eternal life now. You are no longer seen as sinful but as righteous once you've made that commitment. And all our debts are paid. We are children of God's kingdom now. This is the good news. And then wait for the response. They'll either change the subject and go somewhere else, or otherwise they might ask some questions which gives you further, further opportunity to share with them. That's the message of reconciliation. Let's go to verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Wow, that's a beautiful word. Ambassadors. It's a noble word. It speaks of dignity. It speaks of one representing his government or kingdom. It's a position of great honor. God bestowing great honor on his children. You are ambassadors for me. You are a minister of the highest rank. And you have the authority of the sovereign. You are one who speaks holy for your ruler. It's the same on earth. 
He is the ruler's mouthpiece, only offering that government's demands, rulings, and things of the kingdom. And his personality, this ambassador's personality and character, add weight to his ministry, backing up the kingdom he represents. They don't just appoint ambassadors willy-nilly. They choose them. They groom them. And then they send them out. They send them out into a foreign land where he has to endure and work in a foreign culture. It is in this environment he brings the message of his sovereign, whoever that might be, a government or a king. And ambassadors often have to seek reconciliation and they have to do it with intensity. God has chosen human spokesmen to proclaim his message, to speak for him. So likewise, we are in this foreign land, belonging to another world, a different spiritual dimension, and we are called by our king to tell these perishing people that they can be reconciled to God. Well, you may argue, well, what is the point if God already knows who the saved will be? That's quite a common question. Well, Paul had a similar query when experiencing much opposition in Corinth. In Acts chapter 18, Paul is struggling with this opposition from the Corinthians. And so the Lord encourages him. And this is what he says in chapter 18, verse 9 of Acts. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. For I have many people in this city. What did Paul do? Paul heard God's heart and did what God asked. Look at verse 11. He continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God or the word of reconciliation among them. Paul obeyed God and continued to teach regardless of the opposition. Folks, we don't know who God's elect are, but the message is the same. As God said to Paul, He may say to us here at Riverbend, Saints of Riverbend, I have many people in Hastings. I have many people in Havelock North. Many people in Napier and further afield. Do not hold back heralding the good news. They need to hear it if they're going to get saved. And here's an interesting verse where Jesus was instructing his disciples in John 10:16. Jesus says to them, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Notice those words, Jesus saying, I must bring, they will hear. These are definites. And as we share this powerful message, God is at work in their hearts. We don't know who they are. But as we share the message, God is at work in their hearts. God is so serious about this that He uses words here in our text 
in 2 Corinthians 5.20, like pleading, like begging through us, his mouthpiece, even emphasizing it by saying, we implore you, this is what Paul says, we implore you, we beg you, be reconciled to God. There's an intensity in that word. We are beseeching, we are beseeching, we are pleading with you, be saved for your own sake. I just thought of this. Have you ever looked into the eyes of a genuine beggar as he holds out his hand for some money? You see this a lot in South Africa. You would recognize in their eyes despair. There's a longing for something, a pleading for consideration. I am in pain. Please hear my cry. God is pleading through us to reach out to the unsaved. This verse says, as though God were begging through us. We need to share the message earnestly, with conviction, that they can see that this God, whom you are talking to them about, is real. He is real in your hearts. I've heard this before too. You may say, well, God doesn't need us. Why does God need us? But I might want to pose some questions here. Maybe God would say to us, why do you think I created you in my image? And what I made I confirmed was good. Did we not have great fellowship and sharing in the garden? These are just questions that I've, I've come to my mind. I'm just giving them to you. Did I not love you unconditionally and give you all you needed? Well, my heart is breaking because of your disobedience. But my unconditional love will find a way to reconcile us again. Praise God. God reassures us that there is hope. There is a way to salvation. And that, that is through faith in Jesus Christ. This is important. Your spiritual reach will never surpass your spiritual depth. Your spiritual reach will never surpass your spiritual depth. How deep is your foundation in the Word of God? That's why Sunday after Sunday you hear, read the Word, read the Word, be immersed in the Word, be immersed in the Word. Because it's that depth that brings the presence of God in your life. Because of the Holy Spirit working in you to bring life to what's in your heart. Your spiritual reach will never surpass your spiritual depth. I just think of Peter. There he was. He denied Christ three times. Peter was simply a clay pot. And towards the end, after they'd seen all these amazing things, Peter turns around to his disciples and says, Come on, boys, let's go fishing. And if they went back to their old profession, going fishing, well, needless to say, they caught nothing that night. Until the Lord came and said, throw your nets on the other side. You're not to be fishing for fish anymore, you're fishing for men. And lo and behold, the very next chapter is Acts chapter 1 and 2. There you see these clay pots being filled with the Holy Spirit. 
They had all this knowledge. They had all this experience. But now they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were filled now with the Word in their heart burning. What happened? They came out on the balcony firing for God. They came out on the balcony with an earnest in their hearts. You need salvation. And the early church was birthed. Birthed out of depth. The depth of God's Word in their hearts. The presence of God in their lives. Their relationship, their intimate relationship with their Savior. Let's go to verse 21. For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. To be sin for us, the wording here is to be a sin offering for us. Christ had to be made sin. He had to die our death. He had to suffer our punishment. I just want to read this particular couple of verses in 1 Peter chapter 2. I just want to go from verse 21. For to, for, this, for to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes... You were healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. If you were to meditate on this verse, these verses here, and consider them, you would understand Jesus' humiliation. If you thought about it, here He is, our Savior, who is God, and yet he had to allow such humiliation for us. He was spat on. He was jeered at. He was shouted at. He was kicked. He was punched. He was manhandled. The Bible cannot even de- doesn't even describe what he went through exactly. He carried his cross up Calvary bleeding all the way. And as the nails were driven into his hands and feet through the intense pain, he remained faithful and fully submitted to his Father's will. The enemies of God being reconciled and saved because Christ himself became the perfect and final substitutionary sacrifice on behalf of those who have saving faith in him. Everything we do is directed toward the faith of sinners so that they can be reconciled to God. Let's, let's end off now in chapter 6. Just look at verse 1. We then as workers together with him also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Do we appreciate the privilege of working alongside God to achieve his purposes? The privilege of being in partnership with the Almighty God. Here's the ultimate partnership. Us in partnership with the Almighty God. You know, you you hear of people who work alongside, as some of you might watch some of these TV programs, uh, MasterChef, for example. Uh, There they are, all cooking, and suddenly they bring in one big cheese chef come in. 
and he's very well known. And you look at their faces. He's coming in and he's coming to cook with them and he's coming to help them. They're all enamored because they're going to be working with somebody. They're going to be, in a sense, partnering with that person. I can remember the day many years ago um, in my, when I was quite a lot younger, in my 20s, um, I had the opportunity of playing a couple of golf holes with Gary Player. Some of you might remember Gary Player. He's the man who used to play in black, and he was the world's top golfer for some time. And this particular day, I had the, the absolute privilege of playing with him for a couple of holes. Boy, I was so excited, so built up that I duffed everything. And he was helping me with my swing and showing me what to do. But I had a claim to fame after that. I actually played some golf with Gary Player. That's nothing compared to our partnership with the Almighty God. The one who owns everything. And here in this verse we see Paul exercising verse 20. Where he pleads with those in Corinth to examine their position to know that they were believers and that their faith endures. Otherwise, the mercy shown to them in the preaching of God's word and the reception of God's word would be in vain. And you can hear in that verse the the very urgency in Paul as he wanted them, as he begged them to receive the truth and respond. Do not receive the grace of God in vain. As he reaches out. And then in verse 2. He says. In an acceptable time I have heard you. And in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold now is the accepted time. Behold now is the day of salvation. Folks Christ will complete his saving work. When he returns in glory. Recognize the urgency of the times in which we live. We are in the day of great opportunity. Because the final saving work of God has come to earth through Christ. Yet we are in a day of great danger. Because, the fail, because failing to receive the salvation through enduring faith will bring a severe judgment. The New Testament age is the climax of history. And there will be no possibility of salvation beyond the New Testament. We are to share the word while it is still day. For the night soon comes. We don't know when that's going to be. So we live in a critical moment in history. Seize the opportunity and be a good ambassador for your Savior. And please Him with the sharing of the ministry and the word of reconciliation with the unsaved. Let's pray. Father, what would we do without your word? What would we do without your Holy Spirit? What would we do, Lord, without the power that you place in our lives after we've been saved? That power, that insight into your powerful message that brings life, that has changed our lives and that is con- and is changing our lives from one degree of glory to the next. We thank you today for your word, Lord. And I pray that you would stir our hearts to a greater desire and a greater hunger for your word as we reach out to you in prayer during the days 
that we have ahead. Please, Lord, strengthen our resolve to be good ambassadors for you, to share the truth, to love your church, to love your body, and to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as we come under the hearing of your word, that there would be sparked off in our hearts such a desire to share that word with the unsaved. And Lord, there are many people sitting here this morning, many people here who would think through their families and know that there are many, many out there that are unsaved, many that they've been sharing with for some time, many that they've poured the gospel out to for some time. My God, can we plead with you today? Please, please, Lord, hear the cry of their hearts. Please, Lord, open their eyes and give them the faith that they might respond to your word and that there would be wonderful testimony of family members getting saved, of friends getting saved as we look to you for help and guidance and opportunity to share that wonderful message, that powerful message of eternal life. And so, Lord, we commit this time now into your hands, and I just pray for everyone here that you would protect them, guide them, provide for them, and that they would please you and bring you much glory. In Jesus' name, amen.